So Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, comes out in 1986. If you'd walked into a bookstore like the day before he came out, everything would have been romance novels. And really the idea was of the romance novels, the, 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 the sort of message, um, which isn't always the best way to understand a novel, but that's a part of it. The message was something like, um, if you love God, if you let God love you, if you follow the Bible, you will flourish. You will live your best life now in the American suburbs in the 1980s with two kids and a dog. And that isn't everybody's experience of faith. Welcome to Acton Line. You just heard Daniel Silliman, journalist and news editor for Christianity Today, speaking on his new book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Silliman argues that the formation of evangelical identity does not stem first from institutions or political stances. Rather, it comes from Christian fiction and the industry of Christian publishing and bookselling. Now, in light of this, he explores the questions, what is evangelicalism and what is evangelical subculture? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Daniel Silliman, News Editor for Christianity Today. He earned a doctorate in American Studies from Heidelberg University in Germany and has taught American history and the humanities at Heidelberg, Valparaiso, and Milligan University. Today, we'll be discussing his fascinating new book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Daniel, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Thanks. Good to be here. So at the very beginning of your book, you make sort of a startling confession that you feel like you've gotten away with something here. Um, I already feel like we're in the beginning of a heist movie. What do you feel you got away with in writing this book? And what was the score? What was that? What was that? What was the payoff for both yourself and, and, and for the readers? It is a strange, it was a strange project to start with. I mean, it's very unusual to get a history of novels just, just off the bat. Like people read novels uh, aesthetically, people read them for literary questions, but reading them, treating them as historical objects is just odd. Uh, I was also, as you mentioned, in an American studies department. American studies has been not, not quite eviscerated, but contemporary academia doesn't believe that American studies uh, there's not enough money and resources for interdisciplinary work like American studies originally intended to do. Uh, I was also an American in a German program studying America. So that was another just like layer of, of strangeness. Um, but, but really the, the heist, I think that's not a bad way to think about it. The heist was, um, treating these books seriously, seeing these pop culture objects that have 
millions of readers and millions of fans and that everyone knows is out, are out there and are, are, are all over the place and sort of grabbing them for the sake of history, pulling them into history and how we think about the history of evangelicals in America. Yeah, because evangelical is, is, is a very sort of contested term and some see it like as, as a contemporary as, as sort of an identity in crisis right now in many ways. Um, and there are different ways that historians have tried to answer this question of sort of what is an evangelical? Um, where what, what, what are some of these definitions that you've seen uh, out there? Um, and, and where do you think that they, those definitions fall short? And why should we look to novels, into Christian bookstores, into, into culture more generally for those answers that, that um, you know, the historians that have explored this in different ways might, might not be getting the whole picture? Yeah, it is an identity that's that's a most essential element might be how it's contested, how it's fought over. And this is a, a fight that's been brewing in uh, history and in, 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 uh, among historians for a while that I think now is visible to anyone who's even like mildly paying attention. Um, and in my book, I... I try to interject into that debate and I try to give an alternative. So it's a history of best-selling Christian fiction that's interesting and valuable just for people who want to know what's the deal with these books. Um, but it's also a an intervention into the historiography, trying to trying to adjust how people think about evangelicals. The, the oldest way, the standard way that historians have thought about evangelicals is based on belief, a belief-based definition. Uh, people typically go back to the historian David Bebbington, who in 1989 uh, wrote this book. And in the, his intro, he came up with like a four-part belief-based definition that people used and reused and used again. And it's called the, for people who know, it's called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. And the idea is that <clears throat> there's a couple of beliefs, four beliefs, and they're the essence of what defines an evangelical. And if you believe these things, you are an evangelical. And if you don't believe these things, you're not. The, the problem with that approach is that it is uh, essentialist, first of all. As a historian, we're interested in, as a historian, I'm interested in change and change over time. And that belief approach really tries to be abstract. It tries to say, these are the things that have never changed. And as a result, it ends up being really awe historical. It mushes together a bunch of different things. So if you take one of the, one of the four parts is Biblicism, which Bebbington says is that um, they have a particular regard for the Bible, but that means um Literalism, sometimes it means the doctrine of inspiration, other times it means devotional reading, other times. And just as like a thing in the world, as a, as a practice, devotional reading is different from inspirational, the belief in the inspiration of the Bible. Those are just not the same kind of object. So it kind of mushes some stuff together. Um, on the other hand, increasingly, you see um, journalists and people who are maybe more hostile to American evangelicalism uh, 
coming up with a political based definition, right? Evangelicals <clears throat> are the people who supported Donald Trump or George W. Bush or however you want to go. Um, that is factually true, but it also doesn't account very much for change over time. It also doesn't help us understand how evangelicals might be different in the future or might have been different at any of those moments. Like it kind of ignores the way that history is supposed to help us attend to forks in the road. So it's also essentialist. So my approach, and I'm not the only one who've gone this way, but, but my approach is to think about imagination and infrastructure, right? Think about the ongoing conversations that evangelicals have that pull them together from different denominations into this common, um, what academics call a discourse community, and then really really pay attention to the physical structures, the real world structures that organize that conversation. Um, I took bookstores and the book market as the important infrastructure I wanted to pay, atten pay attention to. Um, I don't think that's the only one. Um, a celebrity preacher like Billy Graham serves that same function. Magazines serve that same function. Uh, conferences are really vital in the history of pulling evangelicals into a common conversation. But bookstores are a really good one and a really important one that help us see this trans-denominational religious movement in all of its multiplicity and in all of its contingency. Okay. So what, what we're looking as we're looking to move away from these mere semantic definitions that might not fit Either everyone who who identifies or everybody who would, you know, you'd naturally think, oh, this person's an evangelical. And yet for some reason um, on some sort of semantic criteria, they don't fit. On the other hand, you can take these sort of semantic criteria and you could apply them back into history, maybe to people that everybody would understand is like, no, no, no this is way before evangelicalism. Um, this ties it up into, you know, the movement <clears> – <throat> The movement itself, the institutions, um, and and those questions of sort of like uh, self and community identity, and I, I think it's a very fruitful approach, and and one that you've that you've done a really nice job with here. There's definitely a there's definitely a problem with what uh, historian Timothy Glegg has called um, evangelical gerrymandering that. That depending on how you use one of those essentialist definitions, you can, you know, go back to the first great awakening and claim a bunch of evangelicals who never used the word. That word didn't exist in that form. It wasn't used at all. But then you can do other things like, like look at someone <laughs> askance a little bit, someone you're maybe not as happy with and say, oh, well, that person doesn't, doesn't really, um, doesn't really count. So an example I use in the in the book, just to give people an idea of how this question of approach of imagination and infrastructure work is in a family. In my family, we've talked a lot this last year about having a garden. And if you were trying to define who are these people, what are they about? You might say, oh, this is the people who talk a lot about their garden. But two years ago, we didn't have a garden. And two years ago, two years from now, we might not have a garden. So you wouldn't want to ignore that topic of our conversation, but you want to understand 
well, what's structuring that conversation? What are the forces in the world that pull those people together that they can have that conversation? And, you know, with something like politics and evangelicalism, 100 years ago, the most political, politically important issue to this conversation was prohibition. That never comes up now. That's gone. We don't talk about prohibition anymore. On the other hand, we talk a lot about abortion and um, and that also might change, right? A hundred years from now, that might not be an issue. So we have to we have to think about the structures of the conversation and the organizing forces of the conversation and not just content. So one of the really interesting things about the way you structure and organize your book and talk through the way that evangelicalism sort of structures and organizes itself is is through these particular bestsellers. And these chapters aren't merely a discussion of sort of like plot points or the or the sort of like psychological or spiritual drama embodied in them, but also sort of what they say about the evangelical movement that they're arising from. And um, like when you begin um, with uh, your discussion of Janet Oaks' uh, Love Comes Softly, you also sort of begin that chapter with a sort of history of evangelical publishing and the sort of infrastructure that makes a book like this possible. How does that sort of evangelical publishing emerge? I really wanted to get into that. That, that to me, was part of what made the project interesting. I think there's a kind of casual way that normal people think a novel works and that a lot of historians think a novel works where they'll say, oh, this romance novel came out in um, 1979 and it's about um, our feelings about God and our personal relationship with God. So of course that appealed to evangelicals, but it was only possible for that novel to come out because of changes in the publishing industry. So the brief, the brief history is that um, Religious religion publishing, for the most part, for most of American history, has been organized by denominations. So you get the big houses in New York um, that, when when publishing emerges, you know some of some of which are still with us today, Harper Collins and so forth, um, and they publish a couple of religious books, but it's not that big of a market. It's actually like less than poetry. Like it's a pretty small category of books. So the so the denominations step into that and you get Methodist publishers and Presbyterian publishers and Mennonite publishers and they really just serve the people who are part of their institutions. They use um, you know the list of graduates from the seminary is your is your marketing list. Um, and the distinctives of those denominations are the things that they focus on the most. So Methodists, it's not like the Methodist publisher wouldn't have sold to a Mennonite, um, but they are selling to Methodist mailing lists, recruiting Methodist authors from those schools and from their seminaries. Um, and they're, uh, they're just existing completely in a Methodist world. And then of course, they're emphasizing those Methodist distinctives, not Mennonite distinctives. So no one would have said, oh, they have nothing in common, but there was no common 
infrastructural space. This starts to change um, in the, I don't know, say the 1920s. There's a couple of, there's a couple of exceptions, like uh, groups come together for like Sunday school curriculum occasionally, or for Bibles or, um, or um, evangelistic like outreach literature. Sometimes there's some like collaborative efforts, but pretty much it's denominations. This, this starts to change with what we call the fundamentalist modernist controversies when conservatives or self-defined fundamentalists in these various denominations start noticing in their sort of ongoing fight with the modernist in those same denominations that sometimes they have more in common with the fundamentalists in the other denominations than they do with the modernists in their own denominations. And there are a couple of spaces, including like summer camps um, and retreats or like uh, Chautauqua kind of gatherings that bring some of these people together. Um, Grand Rapids becomes a big part of the story. Erdman's and Zondervan, who are primarily serving Dutch Calvinists, realize, oh, some of, some of our readers would be very interested in conservative Presbyterian books, or even like Reformed Baptist conservative books. And if we can figure out how to cross those lines, we can also then sell our books to the, this much wider audience. So one of the first examples is uh, Jay Gresham Machen, um, who is a Presbyterian who's involved in a fight with the Presbyterians um, over liberalism. And his book gets published by a mainstream publisher. I forget which one it is now that this happens, but it... Um, it, it the mainstream publisher kind of only thinks academics are going to be interested in this. And he's doing things in the book, like talking about the difference in German theology between history and Geschichte, right? They're like, this is for academics. So they only advertise it to academics. And the Zondervan brothers who um, have just split from their uncle Erdmans and are going out on their own are able to buy a bunch of these remaindered books really cheap because they realize, oh, they're like, they're like Dutch shopkeepers in Grand Rapids who would totally be interested in this book if we sold it to them for a dollar. There are, there are farmers in Iowa who are all about the difference between history and Geschichte. They're really interested in these kind of theological questions. So that is the, the first breaching of those denominational walls and the beginning of a of a book market that's broader than a denomination. Yeah. So you've, you've, you've got on the one hand, you've got a lot of these, you know, part of this is involved in religious controversies. Um, part of this is involved with sort of emerging, you know, uh, spiritual trends or, or sort of transdenominational religious movements. How does fiction fall into this. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, theological controversies need, you know, theological books. Where does, you know, especially when you've got, you know, in the early 20, in the late 19th, early 20th century, you have, you have some massive bestsellers like, uh, like Ben-Hur, um, subtitle, A Tale of Christ. Um, so you've, you have, you have these books that are sort of like religious fiction books that are big, but they're not necessarily like evangelical fiction. What, what, what makes, what makes a novel, what, what makes, 
a novel, a religious novel, an evangelical novel in this sense? Yeah, so there definitely were evangelical novels if you define it based on they adhered to evangelical ideas or they promoted evangelical beliefs. Ben-Hur is not a bad example. Um, There's also a bunch of like early romance novels that also have like an evangelical faith element in the beginning of the 19th century. These are mostly published by mainstream houses, um, you know, New York City publishers. Um, That evangelical market that I talked about that's emerging with places like Zondervan and Grand Rapids, it's mostly for ministers. So if you walked into a Christian bookstore in the 1950s or 1960s, it would be really heavy on theology and the target audience would be seminarians and ministers, which makes sense, right? If you think of a normal church, the minister's library is probably bigger and more robust than the average person in the pew. On the other hand, there are a lot more people in the pews. There's a lot more like potential book buyers. So in the late 70s, you start seeing this switch where the Christian publishers and the Christian bookstores are starting to shift to market to the broader audience, the more popular audience. Um, They're doing this with stuff like um, there's a book on the power of the tongue that's really popular um, or, or like a lot of conversion narratives. So Chuck Colson's born again, like the story of how someone became a Christian. That's the, that's the first thing, but they've turned their attention to like, who are the book buyers? Um, is there a broader audience? And then, and then it really breaks through with, it really changes with Jeanette Oak. So Jeanette Oak, um, writes this novel. She's she's in um, Alberta. She's a Canadian. Her wife is uh, running a Christian college in Alberta, or her husband is running a Christian college in Alberta. And she writes a romance novel called Love Comes Softly, which is the story of a woman <clears throat> who finds love on the prairie in this sort of historic fictional prairie. <clears throat> and in the process of finding love, also finds faith and she kind of merges those stories together and she just sends it off to a list of publishers and they've never published this kind of thing before. And, but one publisher sees it and thinks, Oh, we have a lot of women. There are a lot of people who might be interested in a romance novel. What this is an untapped market. This is a, this is a whole group of people that we haven't, we haven't catered to, and it's the <clears throat> the wives of pastors, it's the wives of seminarians, it's the people who do most shopping in America. Like this is a, it's crazy not to make books for for these people. So um, Bethany, which also incidentally has the one of the few female editors at the time, a woman named Carol Johnson, they pick it up, <clears throat> they publish it. They bring it to the annual like industry show and it is so successful. Um, they actually have to like nail the last copy to the table, right? Not, not literally, but they're, they're like so many of the booksellers are like, oh man, I can sell a million of these. These are going to be so popular. So within a few years, every publishing house that sells to Christian bookstores that, that, that serves an evangelical clientele is producing a similar kind of romance on the prairie 
um, the story of, of how you can flourish if you can trust and that the experience of finding love and the experience of finding God are somehow emotionally similar. And that becomes, yeah, a really dominant feature of the market um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Jeanette Oak is 79. So by the mid 80s, this is everywhere. So Jeanette Oak does brings together this sort of this sort of the sort of universal, potentially secular experience of love together with this um, very religious, very evangelical understanding of faith. Um, you, the, the next book you profile, Frank Peretti, is This Present Darkness, um, takes a look at sort of uh, the disjuncture between the religious and the secular um, as, as sort of a major theme. Um, and this is, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the one book that you profile that I've actually read. And it's because like, I went on a kick. You know, I was reading The Exorcist. I read uh, Malachi Martin's Hostage to the Devil. This was just sort of, you know, it was the supernatural thriller period in my life. Um, how, is, how is this book, how is this book different in, in, in mobilizing, in, in the way it shapes the interests and the imagination of evangelicals. Yeah, well, the universal experience that Peretti is appealing to is the universal experience of fighting with your neighbor and kind of thinking that those people on the other side of the debate in your small town are stupid or, or maybe have some, some ill intent. Yeah, so Peretti's book, This Present Darkness, comes out in 1986. If you'd walked into a bookstore like the day before he came out, everything would have been romance novels. And really the idea was of the romance novels, the, 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 the sort of message, um, which isn't always the best way to understand a novel, but that's a part of it. The message was something like, um, if you love God, if you let God love you, if you follow the Bible, you will flourish. You will live your best life now in the American suburbs in the 1980s with two kids and a dog. And that isn't everybody's experience of faith. That wasn't Frank Peretti's experience of faith. He was a burned out Pentecostal minister. He'd, he'd left or been forced out of his church. He'd gotten a, a, a job at a ski factory that was apparently terrible. And he just spent all of this time sort of really struggling and wondering like, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong with my faith? So he imagines this story of spiritual warfare, of angels and demons, and imagines the sort of normal conflicts you'd have in a small town as also cosmic supernatural conflicts. So he really tells evangelicals a story where the outcome of your faith of loving God and believing the Bible might be fighting with your neighbors. That could be like a sign that you are really committed to Christianity. He pulls in, for those who know it, a lot of the um, philosophy and theology of Francis Schaeffer and this idea of presuppositionalism, this idea that um, um, Christian, the Christian worldview is, as Schaefer would say, antithetical to secular worldviews. There is no common ground between Christian belief about the world and other people's belief about the world. And so he tells this story of conflict and fighting with your neighbors. 
to an emerging religious right, this is pretty popular. And this speaks to a lot of people. The publisher, which is Crossway, the the, the editor, or I guess the, the um, president of the of Crossway says, this is a book that the moral majority can hold up and say, this is how we see the world. And yet this is, this is also a book that a lot of people took different lessons from. Um, there was a great theme issue in Christianity Today that it's, it's, a, great, it's a great story and we'll, we'll post it in the show notes um, where you talk about particularly Amy Grant, the, uh, the, uh, the Christian contemporary music artist, um, her interaction with the book. Could you, could you unpack that a little bit? Because that's a fascinating story and it's a very different sort of reception of this. Yeah, I really, I really wanted – one of the advantages of looking at novels – is that people do respond to them really differently. It's never just one thing. Um, sometimes you'll get historians, they'll read a novel and then they'll say, and millions of copies sold. And the implication is that all of those millions of people all agreed with the main point of the novel or the main interpretation of the novel, which if you've ever read a novel and not liked it, you know is not quite how it works. People respond in really different ways. And sometimes even people who love a book love it for different reasons. I mean, I read I read Frank Peretti at, I don't know, 14, 15, and was totally blown away by the journalist on page three, who is not a Christian, but she like uncovers the conspiracy, realizes what's going on, gets thrown in jail, and is like, write for the whole novel. And I'm like, how, how does one become a journalist? You know, that was my big takeaway. Um, but yeah, I found a really, when I was looking for readers and how readers had responded to, to it, I found this really interesting story of Amy Grant, um, who was a rising pop star, platinum albums, the first to really cross over from a distinctly Christian concert circuit to a broader audience. Um, and as she was getting really successful, she also was running into some real trouble in her life. Her husband had a cocaine addiction. Um, she had a miscarriage. She thought about, she was thinking about divorce. She was thinking about running away. Someday she was too depressed to get out of bed. She also was getting uh, intense hate as she got more popular um, from Christians, a lot of Christians uh, accused her of selling out. At one concert, she got a bouquet of roses when the note just said, repent. And the idea was that she was talking too much about love and not enough about Jesus, that somehow that um, talking about relationships was betraying the faith. Uh, but it's not like secular audiences were nicer. There was like widespread open discussion as if it was completely normal and good about uh, whether it was okay to lust after Amy Grant and how sexy she was and if she was too sexy or not sexy enough. And like sometimes she performed barefoot and there was lots of comments on her feet and it's just gross stuff. So she's really struggling and someone gives her this book and it really speaks to her. And the idea that like, if you're depressed, you could imagine that that's demonic and then you can pray in response to that. And you can go through the trouble in your life, imagining angels cheering you on and imagine, imagining angels fighting for you and imagining demons being, you, you know, you're, you're not just opposing 
I don't know, your husband's addiction. There's also a, a supernatural element of that, and that can inspire you to pray. So, so that actually ends up being key to the success of the book. Um, unbeknownst to Peretti, unbeknownst to his publisher, Crossway, uh, Amy Grant starts promoting it on stages and during you know chatter she's like recommending this book and so in every town that she plays in in 1986 1987 88 89 um christian bookstores are just getting flooded you know they'll open up in the morning and suddenly there's a line of 10 people waiting to buy this book they heard about um but the point the point that i'm really trying to make is these books speak to the imagination and they inspire and provoke an evangelical imagination, but in a bunch of different ways. On the one hand, you get sort of culture warriors. On the other hand, you get people who just want to talk about faith and struggle. One of the other sort of sort of ways, um, this there's a way that the the theological, particularly theological visions. Um, get sort of introduced to people through this medium. And, and, and the classic here is, is sort of the, uh, the Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins Left Behind series, which, which revives what is, you know, an old American theological tradition in eschatology, you know, well, I mean, you know, old in, in the context of America in a sort of 19th century sort of sense, and introduces that um, to a lot of new people, um, is that something, how does, how does, how do we unpack that on how, how sort of, um, you know, we talked in the beginning about, um, one of the ways, the, the problems of defining evangelicalism in terms of just belief, but then these imaginative worlds also sort of transform belief and make arguments for belief. How do, how do you see that, that interaction? One of the places that I started in this whole project was actually um, in grad school giving a presentation on Left Behinds. And I, I mostly focused in that, at that moment on the theology. This is the, the, the history of this idea of the rapture and maybe a secret rapture and the rise of the antichrist. And this, you know, it, it became widely popular in the, in the U S after the American civil war. And then my professor asked me at the end, this question that I totally floored me and I did not know the answer to. And he said, but then why is it fiction? Like if it's all about the theology or all about the politics, like why not write a theology book? And it turns out, Part of what inspired Tim LaHaye, uh, who's a pastor in Southern California, he actually had written a theology book. No one read it. It's still the case that almost no one has read it. Um, and and then he he actually saw a showing of Ben Hur to give a call back to Ben Hur and was like, why why don't I do something more like that? People love that. Uh, these theology books aren't really speaking to people. So the book does promote a specific theology, but what it does is, I mean, if you think of a theological argument, it starts with saying, isn't this true? Or like, let me persuade you of the truth of this thing. Where a novel instead asks people to suspend disbelief, right? You don't have to agree with me, 
but can you suppose that the world is like this just long enough to be entertained? And it's okay. You can put the book down wherever you want. Um, you can decide at the end that that's not what you think, but it was interesting for the purposes of a story. And so that speaks to a much wider audience. Um, and in the process allows people to play with and experiment and try on other ideas as well. So, so I really found the center of Left Behind, the sort of central thematic thing of Left Behind is less about the apocalypse and more about this experience of you or the hero seeing God working in the world and everybody else disagrees. <laughs> so it's almost like, what do you, what do you do? What do you do with a reality where you know the truth and everybody else is wrong? Um, and because of that, it actually pulls in a lot of apologetic stuff. Why do people reject the truth? What is the explanation and how can people be persuaded to see God working in the world when you know that you know that you know that God is working in the world? So the, 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 there's there's the spiritual conflict with Peretti. There is this, um, this cultural conflict or uh, epistemological conflict in Left Behind. And then there's interreligious conflict in Beverly Lewis and, and, this, and this sort of Amish romance, uh, the bonnet rippers as, as they're, as they're often described. How is, how, how does this explore like a different aspect of that identity? The fifth book or the fourth book I looked at was the first Amish romance novel, which became this wildly popular subgenre. Um, I think at one point there was a new one published every four days and, if you go to like Barnes and Noble today, there's normally like a whole shelf of these books, more, more than any other type of Christian fiction, not just by Beverly Lewis. And they're Amish in character and in setting, but they're really evangelical in theme and content and who's producing them and who's reading them. They're Amish in the same way that like Regency romance are, are Regency, right? It's the, it's the imaginative setting that people are using. Um, the the tension or the conflict in in um, in Beverly Lewis is is authenticity. How does my religious community inhibit me from being myself, or how does it enable me to be myself? Um, and Amish romance novels go in both directions. Sometimes the religious community is the obstacle. Sometimes it's the answer to, to, the, to the obstacle. And the idea there is that belief and, and faith in Christ will help me be my truest self. And that, that, that um, true religion or true spirituality will not force me to be fake, but will, will, will allow me to really flourish and really become myself. Now, notice, and you pointed this out, this is not the same idea that Frank Peretti is pushing, right? So if I say evangelicalism is about authenticity and loving other people and through that process of community becoming who God wants you to be, or, you know, people might know the old saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's different than, um, God loves you and his truth is totally antithetical to your neighbors and you should be fighting them. Um, 
but but evangelicalism ends up being all of these things at once in the Christian bookstore. And sometimes people pick and choose. Sometimes people find way to bring one or two or three of these things together. Um, and that's, you know, we talk about it being contested. It's also this um, sort of roiling experience inside. There's a lot of options. There's a lot of places to move and experiment and grow. Um, and we see that in just how different these novels are. The, the, the last novel sort of um, puts, puts us in a very, very sort of, I think, I think puts us, brings us up to date on sort of where evangelicals or many evangelicals find themselves now with The Shack, which is a very different sort of um, emotional and spiritual landscape with with very different um, different sort of questions than these other books, um, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Because it's, it's it's a fascinating book and, and very and very strange. Um, but I think also like I obviously resonated with a lot of people in their own experience. I originally conceived of my book as going by genre, not by individual novel, that I'd have like a genre about romance and a genre about apocalypse. And I actually started that way. The Shack was one of those books that it wasn't clear what genre it was supposed to fit in. It's a really important book, but it starts out as a crime novel and then it sort of shifts into something supernatural. And it ends up being mostly the story of a man um, on a retreat um, with the Trinity. He goes to a shack in the woods um, and has experiences and long conversations with the three persons of the Trinity um, who are represented as, as um, in human form. He's experiencing in these diverse human forms, which that, that turned out to be the most controversial part. So he portrays God, the father, as a black woman, named Papa, um, and that that raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, and a lot of people called it heretical. Um, but underneath all that, or when you read through all that, his story is about um, responding to abuse. Personally, uh, Paul Young was sexually abused and then became himself an abuser as a child, abusing younger children. That's part of his story. And then recovering from that and finding grace, finding grace in Christianity, in, in faith in God. Um, and in the process of that, really learning to embrace ambiguity and, um, you know, the literary term is liminal spaces. There's a lot of in-between and there's a lot of doubt and there's a lot of uh, tension between ideas. And he ends up saying that his experience of faith is this experience of trust in the tension. So it ends up becoming actually a quite postmodern novel in the literary sense of the form. I actually think that it does have a genre. It's postmodern fiction. It raises a lot of questions about um, authorial identity um, in the way exactly the same as like David Foster Wallace or somebody who might, it, it messes with the form, like your expectations of genre. Um, that wasn't how most people read it, but I think from a literary standpoint, that's probably the best way to understand it. 
At the same time, there's this growing movement that people would have heard about called the Emergent Church of upcoming a sort of younger generation, Gen X and millennial evangelicals who are rejecting some of the um, some of the culture war faith of their parents and some of the um, um, fundamentalist style emphasis on certainty and foundation and logic and learning more about faith as a kind of trust and faith as a kind of dwelling in ambiguities and uh, experiencing um, multiple stories going on at once that never quite cohere into one master narrative. So that book, that book's pretty controversial still. Um, it's also really interesting as a, as a part of the publishing history, it kind of shows how Christian publishing is starting to break apart. It is originally sold on a podcast, um, like they, before they even called it a podcast, um, but it's it's uh, sold out of a garage by a podcast as like, hey, this book this guy wrote is pretty cool. And then after it sell, and then um, one of the ways they sell it is through this new new outfit that's selling books online called Amazon.com. Um, and Christian bookstores don't like it. Christian publishers don't like it. A lot of leading Christian ministers don't don't like it. But it still finds its way to the same market of people. Uh, and then. And then it gets picked up by uh, Hachette. So it's a French conglomerate that also publishes people like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer that says, hey, this book's pretty popular. It's being sold essentially as a self-publishing venture. Um, we, can, we can make it big. So you really see with this story how the, <clears throat> how the singular evangelical market is starting to fragment and it's no longer as coherent as it used to be. And, th- and this brings us sort of full circle to sort of where your book begins, which is with the sort of going out of business sale at, at a family Christian bookstore in Mishawaka, Indiana. And, you know, publishing is, 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 is an industry in general is one that's struggling. Um, sort of brick and mortar retailers in general are struggling. Um, and this is hitting um, these Christian spaces, uh, these Christian bookstores, these Christian publishers as well. If you're right, and if a major part of what evangelicalism is, is a product of these institutions in the imagination sort of fostered in these communities. What does it say about the future of evangelicalism when this traditional sort of mode of existence is, is one that we might be losing? It's, it's not that evangelical people stop existing. It's not as if the evangelical imagination, evangelical imagination stops imagining. It's just that the, we had in the second half of the 20th century, some infrastructure that held a lot of different things together all at once. And that created this space where people were living out their faith in these robust conversations that could go a lot of different directions. What what happens now is that these books are still sold, but to smaller niches. So you don't get a mega hit bestseller. We haven't had a mega bestseller in evangelical publishing, evangelical fiction since um, 
the shack, but people are still selling books. But today, you know, if you walked in in 1986 to a bookstore and you love Frank Peretti, it was sitting next to Francine Rivers. It was followed up by, uh, you know, the Jerry Jenkins crime novel that he wrote after uh, he finished with Left Behind. Today, if you go try and buy a Frank Peretti novel online, and 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 they still sell. This Present Darkness sells 8,000 copies a, a year, I believe. Um, but then the algorithm is going to say, oh, if you like this, I bet you'll also like this. And it's a much narrower band of things. So we still see, we still see evangelicalism imagining. <laughs> it's just now that we have evangelicalisms. Um, and the infrastructure that, that organizes conversations is not quite as broad as it used to be. It's not quite as diverse as it used to be. And you, you're getting a, a, a kind of breakdown where you get these people and these people and they don't necessarily talk. And this is, this is something that you see in a lot of genre fictions, um, as part as part of the nature of, of of publishing itself, the increasing popularity of self publishing, and yeah, it'll be it'll be it'll be an interesting story to cover in the future in, in the pages of Christianity Today magazine. And you have given us a remarkable history of this past. Thank you, thank you so much for this book. I would highly recommend it to our listeners. The title is again "Reading Evangelicals: How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith." Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. It was a blast. Thanks for talking. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.